Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm the tail end of the baby boom, maybe the last year, 1964. And I remember growing up and going to public school. I went to public school from first grade through ninth grade, and, and I have great, great memories of that. I remember growing up in Flagstaff, Arizona, and what that looked like a little bit. First and second grade, we're in Hartley, Iowa, of all the places, northwest Iowa, the middle of nowhere from here, but... It's not quite southern Minnesota, but it is what it is. As a little kid going to school, I remember the class beginning the same way every day. We'd come and gather together. We'd play a little bit before school. The, the bell would ring. We'd go into the classroom. We'd sit down. The teacher would have us stand up, and they would say, now we recite the Pledge of Allegiance. And even as a first or second grader, we would stand, put our hands over our heart, and it was an honor to be the one who led that. Today is your, or this week, it's your birthday, and it's your week to lead the pledge. You would say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, with liberty and justice for all those pieces, right? And then we would sing, my country, tis of those words were ingrained as a, as a little boy on my heart. I can go back, I can see standing there in my Kmart clothes with a bad haircut and buck teeth and I can see that. I, I can even hear our little first and second grade classroom sing my country tis it. At a very young age, I was led to be very proud of our country. I was taught by my school and, and my family to love America and to be proud of our nation. I was taught about the patriots of the revolution. In February, when it was President's Day, my mom still had little cutouts of silhouettes of Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, and the pilgrims. I was taught about the patriots of the revolution, the heroes of leadership, military people who made profound sacrifices. So... For me, for us. And I was taught to appreciate those things. And to see a bigger thing guiding our country than just political action. Somehow it was more about America and people and a nation walking together. Those words kept ringing in my ear this week. We, the people. That's where, that, that's where I'm from. And I'm sure many of you have those same feelings when you think about July 4th and you think about our nation. But I'm reminded that preaching on these Sundays is difficult. And it's not for the faint of heart. For for every person who agrees with me, there's about 50 or 50.1% that disagree. And maybe that's just politically and not about our country. It seems when we mention our country, there's somewhat of mixed feelings about that. Some people get angry and some people get sad that it's not the way it was. And some people are, are apathetic and say, well, as long as it's kind of okay, then I'm okay. And it's all just fine. But for me, there's a sense of love for our nation in an appropriate way. 
I love living here. I love being here. I love traveling to a different country than landing in LAX and seeing all the diversity of people standing in the customs place, waiting in line to get in. I'm grateful for what we have and even more for who we are as a nation. And I don't want that ever to get lost in the political divide that we have in our country right now. And so someone asked me a question this week that, that just kind of punched me in the nose. They said, well, pastor, it's, it's July 4th coming up. Was Jesus political or not? And I had to think about that. Was Jesus one who ran for office and found a political solution for every problem? Well, let's strain that through. Let's think that through. Looking at Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, Jesus speaking with Pontius Pilate hears that exchange. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pontius Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus made no reply, and <laughs> Pilate was amazed. You think with his life in balance, Jesus would have had a little bit more to say or taken a little bit more of an affirmative position when asked if he was king. Pastor Tim Keller, Presbyterian pastor, very, very successful man in uh, Manhattan, New York, recently passed away from pancreatic cancer. He made three observations about this text that I thought were very powerful and brought into focus how as Christians we, we can think about politics in our country in a way that's constructive and leads us to be together rather than divided. Keller speaks of the political ambiguity of Jesus, the revolution of Jesus, and the substitution of Jesus. Was Jesus of Nazareth political? Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the guy? Are you the man? And Jesus says, with great ambiguity, well, that's what, that's what you're saying. Pilate's simply trying to figure out what a threat Jesus is to, to him, to his power, to Rome, and all of those things. And Jesus said, eh, you know, whatever it's you say. And I wonder what Pontius Pilate thought. He was the political leader. He was the guy to keep order. He was the guy to make sure that the economics and the peace and all of those things were kept together. Well, was Jesus political? Well, no. And yes. No. He, he didn't have a brand, a party, a voting block, or a political action committee. He didn't overthrow any government in the 33 years that he was there. He was never elected to a political office. As we understand politics in 21st century America, Jesus was not political. No. But yes. 
There were political ramifications to Jesus' life. Governments at that time were totalitarian. The emperor was considered divine. He ruled everything in every way. He had divine qualities to him. Caesar is Lord. But 500 years or so after Jesus, the largest empire in the history of the world fell. And it fell not long after Jesus' disciples took the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And the moniker Caesar is Lord was replaced with Jesus Christ is Lord. Interesting to think about, isn't it? It wasn't the political persuasion of Jesus that transformed the world. It was the message of his vision and values of love and kindness that endured after his death and resurrection that changed literally everything in the civilization at the time. The unique idea of equality for all people because people bear the image of God and they have been redeemed in the blood of Jesus. It took a while for that to be brought into the culture. Women the same as men. Races brought together, slaves set free. Was Jesus political? Well, on the one hand, no. And the other hand, well, yes. But maybe not like we think. It was the people of Jesus who brought the message of Jesus to the ends of the world. And the message of the gospel brought a transformation about how the whole of civilization, how they looked at humanity and how people began to love and care for each other in a different way than they did under the Roman Empire. And so I'd love to tell you, beyond the shadow of a doubt, Jesus was political. He had a blue cape and a red thing. No. Was Jesus political? No. Were there political ramifications to Jesus' ministry? Yeah. But for Christians to live in that ambiguity keeps us away from co-opting Jesus of Nazareth for our politics. And saying, you know, if you really believed in Jesus, then you would vote, you would stand behind, you would think the way I think. And that idea of Jesus being politically ambiguous allows us to let him be who he is and be people like those first century people who are about bringing the love of Jesus to bear in their homes and families, in their communities, and ultimately at the ends of the earth. And so in that ambiguity, we probably want to be pretty careful in wrapping our politics around Jesus and his bride, the church. Interesting to think about. And as you haven't headed for the exits yet, let me get to my next point. That there was a revolution that came with Jesus of Nazareth. When Jesus is at the lowest point of, 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 of his life, standing before Pilate, having been beaten with a crown of thorns and all of that stuff, it's interesting to me that he doesn't fight back. 
He could have called down legions of angels. He could have raised up an enormous army. But the revolution of Jesus is not filled with warfare. It's not to fight with clubs and perhaps the revolution that Jesus is bringing is a revolution of long-suffering and patience for his people who emulate their Savior's patience. Christian leaders uh, throughout millennia have, have brought forward change and transformation in culture and politics by being patient and standing firm rather than being elected to political office. Two names ring in my ear distinctly this morning. One comes from our own tradition, a Lutheran pastor in Nazi Germany, Reverend Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He never had an office except the office of the holy ministry. He never had placards of people standing behind him like Adolf Hitler did in Nuremberg and Munich and places like that. Yet with a humble tone and the love of Jesus and the firmness of his conviction. Dietrich Bonhoeffer stood against one of the most vile and evil totalitarian regimes in the history of humankind. It wasn't Bonhoeffer's politics that brought that revolution as much as his confession of Jesus that helped sway and move public opinion and the church against the Nazis. And ultimately, without political Influence, he gave his life as a 20th century martyr. The revolution of Jesus wasn't about fighting, but about loving and caring for people. Our own history, American history, filled with people who had no office but who had a big voice. I'm, I'm, I think of Dr. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was that way for sure. He spoke of peace, he led peacefully. He had an enormous impact so that he is remembered to this very day for his I have a dream speech. And in the last number of years, his idea of judging an individual by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin is something that draws us back to the revolution of Jesus not fought with fists and clubs, but fought with love and kindness, with patience and endurance, operating peaceably, using the pulpits of the land to proclaim the love of Jesus. I'm reminded that Jesus stood silent, and sometimes in his silence, his people went and changed the world. We believe as Christians in a culture of life. And that goes back to our early roots. In the Roman Empire, if you had an unwanted child, you, you threw the child out the window. What happened in first century Christianity is that the Christians would go gather those children and, and raise them. It just so happened that the Christians would minister and love and care for the sick. They'd look after widows and orphans. What transformed and brought a revolution was not fighting or politics or voting. What brought it was love and kindness. 
to the point where the politicians would say, you got to get rid of these Christians. They're driving us nuts. And, and the people in the, in the cities would say, you got to be crazy. The Christians are caring and loving in a way that no one else cares and loves. The revolution of Jesus was brought about with peace and influence and love. In our congregation, this is, this is what we do. You notice that our events that we've organized in our congregation are a little different um, post-COVID than they were in pre-COVID. Have you? We're a little bit more about caring for widows and orphans. We're at the point of the spear on family homelessness through family promise of Orange County. We're at the point of the spear, Pastor Trevor and Mary Salgado, and all of you who are a part of our foster care ministry, which includes over 350 volunteers. It's not that we've backed into that and said that would be a nice thing to do. Rather, the influence that we have in our culture and the ability to love and care for people means we can lead them to Jesus rather than get them to vote for what are our political ends. The revolution is a revolution of service, a revolution of love, kindness, and a revolution of life. Keller speaks of Jesus' political ambiguity. He speaks of Jesus' political revolution through love and kindness. And then he speaks of the substitution of Jesus. And I love that. When I first looked at those words, I couldn't figure it out. I, I'm not that dumb, but pretty close. I was trying to kind of figure out. I was like, substitution, what are you talking about? You're a Presbyterian. Presbyterians don't talk about substitutionary atonement. Lutherans talk about substitutionary atonement. Jesus stood before Pilate in our place. And from Pilate, Jesus went to Golgotha. Or as our tour guide said in the Holy Land, Golgotha. He went to the cross. From his beatings and his trial, he went to his death. And you would think that that would be the end of Jesus of Nazareth. Adios, Jesus. You're done. You're finished. You're history. But he wasn't. He stood as a substitute for his people, for the people then, for us this morning. He didn't stand as a candidate. He stood as a savior, as the savior of the world. And he didn't promise to change systems of power first. He changed hearts and lives. He removed the burdens of disease and sickness with healing and wholeness. He abolished sin and death and the power of the devil by substituting himself for us. The punishment that was on him is the punishment we deserve. He is our substitute. Then in before Pilate and now this morning. And the staying power of the substitution of Jesus of Nazareth is unparalleled in the history of humanity. For his substitution transforms us from death to life, from people who see a little world or a, or, or a mighty nation, but see it under the umbrella of the creator of the universe. From people who care less about themselves than they care about others because they are connected to God through faith in Jesus Christ, his son. 
the substitution of Jesus for us. <laughs> That's the story that brought forward the revolution that over 2,000 years later draws billions of people to the cross of Christ. That's the gospel. And that's the message that transformed the world. My grandson is sitting over in the nursery this morning. Good looking kid. Good. He's great. <laughs> Smart. We've decided that we're going to let him skip kindergarten and probably jump right as a two-year-old into first grade. He's just got that kind of ability. And good looks, but whatever. After we got home from our vacation, we were sitting on the couch, and he likes to sit next to Papa, and he, he said, Papa, are you watching news again? Change it. <laughs> okay. What do you want to watch? Tractors. I want to watch tractors. Cool. We'll watch tractors. Turn the news off, Papa. The news frustrates Papa because the news is about politics. The gospel enlivens Papa because it's the good news of salvation in Christ and Christ alone. Six months or so ago, I began thinking about that and about being so frustrated with thus and such. And over the course of those six months, I find myself somewhat distanced from politics and power and find myself drawn to the influence of Jesus. Jesus who is politically ambiguous. Jesus who said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus who said, my burden is light. Jesus who said, as he said to Matteo this morning, I am with you always to the very end of the age. God grant us grateful hearts for every blessing we have as citizens of this land. In the name of Jesus, amen.